Let me just say that it's uh, have with us uh, today uh, Dan and Denise Anderson uh, visiting back with us. Uh, we had a very good time the other night uh, listening to some of their uh, expo- uh, some of their ministry opportunities. Some people look at the an inner city situation; they see it being hopeless and despair filled, and they say somebody should do something about that. Well, this couple is investing their lives among the people who live there in their community and seeking to make a difference for the sake of the gospel. So I hope you'll be sure to greet them and continue to pray for them. Let's uh, pray before we look into the Word. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, give us hearts that respond to the wonders of what we read in your Word. Help us to realize we are hearing you speak to us when we read the Word of God and hear it proclaimed. We pray that you would uh, help us, Father, to be discerning in our hearing. We pray that you would also help us to be um, changed by what we hear and that you would help us to walk in the truth and to truly be set free by your truth. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You often hear in our everyday conversations people alluding to this idea of merit. Whether it's in the academic world, they talk about merit scholarships, people who deserve to have, because of their performance in the classroom, they are the ones who receive the merit scholarships. Or years ago in scouting, which has really been changed quite a bit uh, recently, but scouting used to get merit badges. Do you remember those? And, uh, and then we, we think of civil service workers who I'm sure are very um, desirous of having a merit system in place that promotes government employees based on their performance, based on their competence, rather than some sort of quota system or some sort of, of um, patronage system or some political favoritism. There's a sense of which we really love to have that kind of merit system in place. What do we talk about when we mention merit? Well, a, a dictionary defines it as something that deserves a reward, something that deserves a commendation, a commendable quality or act. When we think about a merit mentality, that's what we all grow up assuming it, what, what makes life work. You get what you've earned and worked hard for. And... Uh, Sadly, this kind of merit mentality has spilled over into the religious realm, not only the academic realm and, the, and in the, uh, uh, the work world, but also in the religious world. Because virtually all non-Christian religions teach that in order to gain acceptance with their God, quote-unquote, we are required to gain some measure of merit. We must earn merit. For example, the Mormons would teach that every person, each person that is saved, they're saved by grace. Yes, they would affirm that. They would say you also have to have faith, a faith that is expressed after you have done all you can as a good Mormon. In Islam, forgiveness is based on a combination of Allah, His grace, plus a Muslim's good works. And if one's good works outweigh one's bad works, then if Allah so wills it, he may be forgiven, all his sins 
are therefore um, been forgiven, and he's entered then into paradise. Now, what do we know about this issue of merit spilling over into even Christianity and perverting it and, and corrupting it? Well, I'd like to spend the next few moments talking in the first uh, point of our outline today about the background of when this began to be uh, identified as a serious problem within Christianity in the time of the Reformers, which would be in about the 16th century. And I want to look now at the background for the doctrine of grace alone. The issue of requiring merit, which we would understand to mean that there is grace plus works operating in this particular approach, that this kind of issue of requiring merit led to an irreparable theological divide that took place there in the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church during the 16th century. The Roman Church taught that in order to have a mortal sin, and mortal sin by that we would understand to be a sin that's so serious that it has put to death, as it were, this work of justification or, or um, cleansing that happened through baptism as an infant, which is what the Catholic Church teaches, it would put that to death. Well, in order to have a mortal sin absolved, a person must practice the sacrament of penance. Now, much of what I'm saying, I'm getting from a summary of R.C. Sproul's book, Are We Together?, in which he looks at the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism. And the Roman Church taught there are three dimensions of penance. There is contrition, confession, and satisfaction. In contrition, a person in that stage is willing to admit that they desire to, res to turn from sin out of a true sense of offending God. That there's a sense of true remorse there in this person's heart and life. That is contrition. And then the second level and area of that dimension of penance is that they must confess their sins to God. And this is done, of course, to the priest. And thirdly, they would teach. And thirdly, penance, they were required, and this is where the, uh, the reformers objected to the idea of this element of penance. They would say it's unbiblical, this idea of satisfaction. Because the Roman church said it's not enough merely to confess one's sins, the church taught that you must perform works of satisfaction. Works of satisfaction. And this would involve things like, say, five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers. Now, that are, just so you know, I, I didn't grow up Catholic, and so when people used to say that, I didn't know what in the world they're talking about. But uh, Hail Marys are prayers in which you're asking for the intercession of the Virgin Mary. And uh, our fathers would be three times you repeat the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes a person may be required as, a, as the uh, works of satisfaction to take a pilgrimage. Other times you'd be required to give alms. And this, of course, is what happens when a person who has done this, has committed a mortal sin, you would go through these stages, and you would therefore gain and some sort of merit that would be the kind of merit that God would say, that's fitting for him to accept that. And therefore in Rome, one must do works of satisfaction in order to gain merit, in order to regain your righteous position before God, which you lost because of the moral sin. Now this sounds a little complicated if you're not 
from that background, but this is what was going on. And the reformers strongly insisted that this kind of system of gaining merit was contrary to what the Scriptures taught. But there's nowhere in Scripture is there any teaching of this along these lines. Specifically, they protested against the practice of gaining merit, which was commonly practiced at that time, through indulgences. Now, indulgences, again, were a way in which if you made a donation, a financial gift, you were granted this piece of paper which made this promise saying that uh, you must have a certain amount of merit to get yourself out of purgatory, a place in which you're being purged, before you could go to heaven. And if you make this donation you, through this indulgence, then it would reduce the amount of time and the amount of, of cleansing and uh, time in which you're being purged in purgatory. Now, the reformers insisted that like water and oil, they don't mix. Same could be true of grace and merit or good works. They don't mix. They insisted that the scriptures teach that a person is saved on the basis of grace alone. Now, what do we mean by that? That gets us to our second point. What is the biblical basis for this kind of doctrine of grace alone? I hope you have your Bible open there to Ephesians chapter 2. Because to me, this is one of the clearest passages you're going to find in all the Scripture to explain and show the basis for this concept of grace alone. This passage begins with a very humbling portrait of fallen humanity. You'll notice in verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, apart from God's saving grace, everyone, no exceptions, everyone is by nature devoted to following Satan's agenda. You say, well, I, I don't consciously do that. I don't know, that can't be referring to me. But it's true that if we're not, by God's grace, uh, changed in our nature, in our hearts, we've never come to faith in Christ, then everyone is by nature enslaved to these desires of our flesh that we want to do what we want to do, which is, again, going back to the whole idea of rather than making God the center of all things, we like to be God and do our own thing, which is, of course, Satan's agenda. As a result, then, everyone is an object of God's wrath. No matter how smart you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how successful you are, how athletically gifted you may be, no matter how religious you may be, Every member of the human race is spiritually in a helpless, hopeless condition, apart from grace. It doesn't matter what you may have done or haven't done. It doesn't matter what you have avoided or haven't avoided. All of us stand condemned before a holy and just God. Romans 14 is so clear on this, which again is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3 as well, he puts it this way. There is no one who, has done good, who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And they have all, all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. It was just two years ago that I suffered a 
terrible injury in my aorta, which is the large artery that takes blood away from your heart. Mine was the one that was descending, going downward. And it tore it apart on the inside of this particular blood vessel. I came very close to death's door. And I was left in this tenuous condition. When I left New Orleans, came back to Long Island, the doctor said, don't do anything. Don't laugh. Don't belly laugh. Uh, don't, uh, you know, he just said, don't do anything uh, that would possibly uh, cause you to have your blood pressure go up or whatever. And so as I came back, I'm just thinking to myself, well, at any moment, this primary artery leading away from my heart could again rip further. It could potentially rupture. And so I'm dealing with major, major problem inside of me. Now, I could do all I want about reading up on the problem. I could have done uh, all sorts of calming techniques and whatever, but that's not going to solve my problem. I was unable to resolve my uh, physical problem in my aorta. I couldn't help myself. And so I sought out a vascular surgeon here in the area. I wanted him to help me because I couldn't do it myself. Now, I want you to think through the implications of what he's saying here in this text, in Ephesians 2, with this analogy of this surgeon. I'm in need of help. I can't fix myself. I'm looking for somebody to help me. Suppose I come to this doctor, and this particular doctor is a gentleman that I've had some interaction with before. As a matter of fact, suppose I had robbed his house and stolen all sorts of valuables from his home about two years ago. That was never solved, and he never got any of it back. Suppose years earlier I had also taken this surgeon to court, and I had brought a lawsuit, a malpractice lawsuit against him, which was based on all sorts of fraudulent medical records that I had somehow uh, made up or twisted and distorted. It was based on all sorts of hearsay and fraudulent these reports, and so I won the case. I had defrauded this surgeon out of uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And to add misery to that man's life even more, suppose while driving my car, I had been texting on my phone. And the car that I was operating had slammed into the car that was being operated by his son. And as a result of the impact of that accident, his son had died. Now suppose as I show up in this doctor's office and I say, Doctor, I'm the one that's done all these things to you, and I acknowledge those things to him, and I say, uh, can you help me? Do you think he's going to get involved in my situation? He will show me the door, if not the police. Now think about that for a minute. He is not going to have anything to do with me because why? I don't deserve it. Would you agree with that? Of course. Now, with this example in mind, I want to remind you now, looking in the text of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, I want you to see, hopefully with fresh eyes, how merciful, how gracious God is. Here is the God who made me. Here is the God who sustains me every day. Here's the God that every day in my life, even though He's given me these days, I have used those days every day I've been alive. And I have defied Him and His authority. I've gone my own way. I've broken His laws. I have loved myself more than I've loved Him. 
more than I love my neighbor for sure. And look at verse 4 and 5. But God, despite all these things I'd done to offend him, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, that is, we were helpless, we couldn't help ourselves, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Do you see what this text is trying to say in such a dramatic fashion, making that contrast between verses 1 and 3 to then verses 4 and 5? What he's saying is God has never been under obligation to save me or to give me any undeserved gifts that he might somehow bestow upon me. And yet God has chosen to act out of the greatness of his infinite sovereign love. Along with withholding what I deserved, he has granted me unmerited, undeserved favor in Christ. It is by his power that he, that he did what I was unable to do. I was powerless. I was dead in sin. But in Christ, notice what the text says, I was made alive. I was cut off from God. But according to His grace, I was joined together with Christ. And I share in the immeasurable riches of Christ's righteousness. They've been given to me. At one time, I was an enemy of Christ, an outcast, a rebel. I deserved to be damned. But in Christ, I was given new citizenship. I was adopted in His family. I, I share in this inheritance now with Christ. Now you see, what's amazing about this text on grace is the, the degree to which he's trying to illustrate. I don't deserve any of these blessings that he mentions here. I deserve the opposite. But God is merciful. God is full of love. His grace is matchless. His grace is amazing. His grace is marvelous. And this text of Scripture goes on to further explain what is the goal of God's dealing with me and dealing with His people in grace, with any sinner who comes repentant and in faith? What is the goal of all that? Why is God being so gracious? Look at verse 7. It is God's intent to demonstrate through the coming ages, throughout eternity, the surpassing riches of His grace by redeeming unworthy, undeserving people, giving them favor, people who were spiritually dead, sinners who were going their own way, defying God. And He bestows upon us this undeserved favor when at one time we were His enemies. He wants to put that on display. And in so doing, God's glory is going to be seen for all eternity as the one who has shared so widely the immeasurable riches of His grace, leaving His redeemed people and all the angels to marvel and to celebrate the glories of His undeserved, unearned favor. Throughout all of the eons of time and eternity, you see, no one is saved on the basis of merit. 
Nobody. No one is declared right with God on the basis of saying, you know, I'm here in glory in the presence of God and all the angels because I made all the right choices. Because I, I, I just, I had it coming to me. I earned this position that I've now finally enjoying. No, we're saved on the basis of what? Grace alone. Period. You look in your notes there, perhaps you'll find this quote from George Knight. I came across this and I thought, wow, what a great way to help clarify and set grace over apart from the way we normally deal with life in this world of merit mentality, I would call it. Look what he says there, George Knight's quote. When, I, when a person works an eight-hour day, nowadays it's more like 10-hour day. Some people are working 12-hour days. When a person works an eight-hour day, receives fair pay for his time, that's what we call a wage. When a person competes with an opponent and receives a trophy for his performance, which is going on today in New York City, right? They have a marathon. Uh, that person who competes, and comes in first, they win a prize. And when a person receives appropriate recognition for his long service or high achievements, that is what we call an award. But when a person is not capable of earning a wage, can win no prize and deserves no award, yet receives such a gift anyway, that is a good picture of God's unmerited favor. I can assure you that there is no one who will ever, ever, ever boast in heaven or brag when they get to heaven about themselves and what they've accomplished and their merit. No one's ever going to be drawing attention to the fact that they say, look at me and look what I've done. This is why I finally reached this milestone. Ephesians 2.9 says it, right? It eliminates all boasting. Grace completely obliterates any kind of self-boasting about what you have accomplished or what you've done. What we're going to be boasting about is the superabundant lavishing of the riches of God's grace that has been granted to us in Christ. But when we rely on our achievements to gain God's favor, we are robbing God of His glory that He alone deserves and so whether it's people who sort of have their little mental checklist well it's church membership maybe i've accomplished that or baptism or i've given some money over the years to charity or i've observed the sacraments uh, i've gone through various uh, uh, hoops that you think are so important maybe in the eyes of god and my friend that is never going to make you right with god and it will never leave you in a standing that will leave you accepted by God. Because the call of the gospel is for us to extend the empty hands of faith and to receive the free gift of salvation. Knowing that what? Even our feeble faith, even our response to put our hands out and receive the gift is according to Ephesians 2, verse 8. Even that's a gift. There's nothing to boast about that either. Well, I want us to push this more toward the practical side of things here as we conclude with our third point. And that is, what are the benefits 
of this concept of grace alone. What kind of benefits are mentioned here? Well, I'll just have a couple, two or three of them here I'd like to mention. One of the miserable consequences of those who adopt this kind of merit system of trying to gain either a right standing with God or restore it through some form of merit that we must accomplish on our own is that they have unending uncertainty. Unending uncertainty. So if we have the gospel of grace, then we can eliminate that. It's so sad when you talk to some of these folks who have practiced this kind of going through the sacraments and you say, well, if you were to die tonight and appear before God in heaven, are you sure that you would have eternal life? Well, I hope so. I think so. I guess. There's all this uncertainty. And the question is, how would one know when you've done enough? If it's requiring my merit, then how much merit is what I need to do? And who is to say that five Hail Marys and three Our Fathers is what is the merit that, that therefore will restore me? Where is that taught? What if that's not correct? I wonder, my heart goes out to everyone who's grown up in this merit-based system. Because what do you do? They try and they try and they try. They keep on trying and they never know if they've measured up. They never know. Keep wondering. There's so much guilt. There's so much uncertainty built into the system. And they think, I've got to work a little harder. I've got to be a little bit better. And then God will finally be pleased with me. But they never get there. But the gospel of grace celebrates the wondrous truth that Jesus Christ has all the merit we need. It's in Christ. We find in Christ an endless resource of merit. Why? Because Christ perfectly kept the law. It is Christ who lived a perfect righteous life. He never sinned. It says in the Scriptures that in Jesus there is no sin. 1 John chapter 3. In Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus is called holy, innocent, undefiled. Could that ever be the description of you? If anyone really knew the real you, what you think about, what goes on in your heart, what you desire, if they really knew the real you, can you call yourself a holy, innocent, undefiled person? I know I can't. But the wonders of the gospel is that the, the gospel promises us that we who were God's enemies are called now to enjoy and fully rely on all that Christ has done for us as our representative. My friend, that's good news. That's good news. Secondly, there's another interesting blessing and benefit of the gospel of grace alone, and that is that we finally break free from this performance treadmill. A performance treadmill. I'm referring to a comment that comes from Jerry Bridges' book called Transforming Grace. I would commend it to your reading. It's very, very helpful. Jerry Bridges' book, Transforming Grace. He talks about a misery that afflicts so many of us because of this treadmill, performance treadmill. If we are attempting to relate to God on the basis of our past performance, if we're attempting to relate to God 
uh, based on how well we're doing right now in the present, we're going to be filled with all sorts of doubt and regret. If we're attempting to gain and maintain a right standing with God on the basis of, of our current performance, how well we're doing in, in, in the things that we think we ought to be doing, whether it's keeping up with our Bible reading or if it's uh, spending enough time in prayer, or if it's doing all the kind acts we should do with our neighbor and, and all those kinds of things, then after a while, if the focus is on how well we're doing on that treadmill of performance, eventually you become joyless. We become operating only out of a sense of duty rather than delight. And so if we assume that we're only blessed by God if we perform well, we've lost sight of God's grace that saves us and sustains us. See, my friend, let me just tell you something. In the gospel, God is not keeping score. He's not granting or withholding blessings on the basis of our performance. Thank God. The score has already been permanently settled in Christ. And so when we enter into the Christian life, we enter it under the banner of grace. You are receiving this free gift, and you enter into that as a believer under the realm of grace, and you continue living the Christian life under the banner of grace. It's all grace. It's not based on our performance. And that leads me to my third point, and that is where I'm convinced that there must be, obviously, among us some who are here today, and they hear this idea of grace and contrary to merit, and I'm convinced that, obviously, sadly, there are still those who are struggling because they think they are too good for grace. There are some among us who compare ourselves constantly to other people. They are so obsessed with what people think of them, whether it's in social media or the way they try to portray themselves in social media, or whether it's uh, how they dress, or how they're constantly looking at people's reactions and evaluating how they are uh, getting feedback from other people around them. And they are comparing themselves with how well they are performing versus someone else. And so these folks tend to measure themselves by themselves. And they oftentimes are comparing themselves with themselves. They're, uh, it's a sad thing because what happens is they begin to say, well, I deserve better because I've done this and this and this right, and this person didn't show me the respect I deserve. I never showed that to him. And therefore, they find themselves justifying the fact that they should be resenting this other person. I'm not forgiving them for saying that. That was ridiculous. They should know better. I've never done that to them. And so they harbor in their hearts a sense of ongoing resentment and bitterness, carrying that chip on the shoulder. May I suggest to you, my friends, meditate on Ephesians 2 long enough till you see yourself and humble yourself and say, wow, that, you, that was the characteristics of my life. Read Matthew chapter 18 and read the parable Jesus taught about the man whose debts were forgiven him. He goes out and demands payment for somebody else for some tiny little, very, very small debt compared to the one that was forgiven him. We'll never understand grace till we understand the fact that we are so undeserving of God's favor. Others of us, I think, are on the other extreme of the continuum, and we struggle with thoughts that we're too bad to be saved. 
We are too stained by sin to be fully cleansed, to be fully forgiven. There are some of us who are very much aware and we can keep saying to ourselves, you know, God, I don't think you could ever really help me. I don't think you could ever really do much for me because my, my failures, my, my sin patterns, they're incurable. My situation is hopeless. This is the self-talk that goes on in their minds. They, they think that God is as disgusted with me as I am disgusted with myself. And so they talk themselves into the point of saying, it's hopeless for them. May I remind you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, in which Paul, who was the least likely person to ever become a follower of Jesus Christ, who was the person seeking his best to destroy Christianity in the best he could, and he says in 1 Corinthians 15, I am who I am, that is an apostle of Jesus Christ, a missionary, by the grace of God. I don't deserve this, he's saying. So may I just suggest to you that this doctrine of grace alone will help you stop measuring, stop comparing, stop striving, receive the greatest gift ever given. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes onto the one who has loved you, who died for you. Throw off this heavy, oppressive, crippling weight of merit mentality. And lift your eyes, the eyes of your heart, onto the one who is the gracious Savior, the one who welcomes all contrite and humble sinners. He welcomes you with open arms. He, he welcomes you with arms of mercy and grace and love. Just like the prodigal son who comes in, what does he deserve? He doesn't deserve any kind of comment from the father, much less interaction. And the father's hugging him and then say, here, son, here's the, here's the garment, here's the ring, here's the shoes. God in grace, my friend, he reaches down to wherever you are wherever you live. My friends, stop struggling with merit mentality. Enter into the surpassing riches of God's grace in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how I thank you for this wondrous grace of which we have very feebly sought to highlight today, but I pray that these truths will resonate in our hearts, Lord, that we will see ourselves in this passage of Ephesians 2. We will see the, the evidence of our deadness of being separated from you and helpless, despairing, and to be filled with a sense of wonder and amazement of your grace and mercy and love, that you welcome sinners, you receive us, and you bestow upon us the things that we don't deserve. And that's what it means to know justification. That's what it means to be sanctified and to be glorified, all because of your grace and grace alone. So, Lord, forgive us for this kind of merit mentality. I pray that through the time of spending in fellowship around your table, the Lord's table, help us, I pray, to be filled with joy, unspeakable 
thanksgiving and gratitude as we celebrate what Christ has done for us through his giving of himself. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified through Christ alone, I pray. Amen.